1: April. You remember nineteen forty-four, of course, that critical fifth year,
0: which was to see the beginning of the end of the greatest and most destructive war in history? You remember the daily headlines, the latest progress on this front and that, a naval battle here, mass bombing raid there, pictures and maps, official communiques, eyewitness accounts, claims and counterclaims. Any story not bearing on the war had to be good in those days to reach the front page. Even the most horrific murders that would normally have earned streamer headlines. Were often dismissed in a few paragraphs and tucked away somewhere in the back but there are some stories that will always be big news and when in march 1944 four people stood that trial at the old bailey london for offenses against the witchcraft act of 1735 public interest reached such a fever heat that for a few days the war took second place let's look over the story again now shall we let's see what it was that set legal experts delving among old and half forgotten laws Finally, to unearth and invoke one which spoke darkly of such things as sorcery, enchantment, and conjuration. In Portsmouth at the time lived a Mr. and Mrs. Edward Homer, who kept a small dragon shop. Over it was a room registered as the Master Temple Psychic Centre, for Mr. and Mrs. Homer were spiritualists. That is to say, they believe not only, as most of us do, that human beings have souls or spirits which survive the death of the body, but also that these spirits can and do communicate with the living through mediums. Now, two fundamental points of a democracy are freedom of thought and worship. Far be it from me to question the validity of spiritualism, nor it can be fairly said with this ever the purpose of the prosecution, which had but one aim, to drive home such everyday crimes as conspiracy, false pretences, intent to defraud, and public mischief. It was the practice of the Homers to hold spiritualistic seances in the room over the shop. And since the engagement of mediums cost money, they were naturally anxious that the session should be well attended. So it happened that one day in December 1943, when Mrs. Homer met an acquaintance, Lieutenant Stanley Worth, RNBR, she said.
1: Oh, Mr. Worth, you know Helen Duncan's coming down to Portsmouth, don't you? I know. Uh, who is she? Well, she's a materialization medium. Quite the most wonderful person in England. Really? You've no idea the things she can do. She can bring back people who've passed over so that you don't just hear them, but actually see them as well. You mean
0: see them in the physical sense?
1: Well, well, not altogether, but you see them as a sort of white mist. It's an ectoplasm that exudes from Mrs. Duncan's body.
0: Sounds most interesting. She, She must be a
1: remarkable woman. Oh, she really is. She has her own private room in the Psychic College at Edinburgh. The King's Chaplain's been down, and I'm told even Lord Darling's interested. Tell me, do these spirits speak? Oh, yes, through Mrs. Duncan's guides. Sometimes she has a man named Albert and sometimes a little Scottish girl called Peggy who died in 1933.
0: When did you say she'll be
1: here? Oh, it'll be early next month.
0: Well, I'd rather like to come along to one of the seances, if I may. Uh, could it be arranged?
1: Oh, I'm sure it could. Of course, we're getting hundreds of applications, but we can always manage to fit in an old friend like you. That's
0: very kind of you. Uh, Now, I suppose there's a subscription of some sort?
1: Yes, we have to make a charge, I'm afraid, to cover Mrs. Duncan's fees. It'll cost you twelve and six, but I'm sure you'll find it's worth every penny.
0: A few days later, Lieutenant Worth returned to the little shop and again saw Mrs. Homer.
1: Oh, uh, Mrs. Homer, I've been telling a friend
0: of mine about this Mrs. Duncan. I was wondering if I could bring him along, too. Oh, certainly. I'll see two seats, for Captain. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I should warn you in advance, though, he's a bit of a skeptic. Oh,
1: we get plenty of them. Uh,
0: he's a doctor, you see, a surgeon lieutenant in the Navy.
1: And they're all such awfully practical people, aren't they? What's his name? Uh, Fowler. Uh, I shan't bring him if you'd rather not, you know. Oh, nonsense. Let him come by all means. I'll give him a seat in the front row and scare him stiff. The only thing is, you must warn him not to demonstrate or be violent in any way, as it might make the ectoplasm rush back into Mrs. Duncan's body and, and do her some harm. Well, I see
0: he behaves himself. Don't worry about that. Now, I, I'll pay for my seat now.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: A few days later, Lieutenant Worth returned to the shop and paid the twelve and sixpence for his friend, this time to Mr. Homer. Then on the afternoon of January the 14th, the two naval men presented themselves for the seance. Homer checked their names and ushered them upstairs. They found themselves in a room in which chairs were arranged in rows diagonally, facing a curtained corner. You'll find bits of paper on the seats with your names on them. Thanks, Mr. Helmut. Which row? The second, I think. Oh, it'll probably be those two there. Come on, brother. Good. Front stalls, eh? I say, oh boy, you must try not to make a joke of it, you know. Oh, sorry. As a matter of fact, I don't think we're in the right seats even now. I thought you said the slips had our names on them. Yes, but I mean I should be sitting where you are and vice versa. Does it matter? I suppose it doesn't, really. Let's stay as we are. OK. Well, what's the thing there, Bob, in the corner? That's what they call a cabinet. The medium sits in that big chair, you can see, and then the oh. curtains are drawn to... hiding, I promise, eh? Yeah, that's right. Then the lights are put out, except for one faint red one. And then the fun begins. Yes, I can hardly wait. In actual fact, proceedings didn't begin quite as abruptly as that. First, Mrs. Homer handed, for the inspection of the audience, a frock, underclothing, and shoes, all black. Then three women were invited to an adjacent room to watch Mrs. Duncan change into these clothes. Meanwhile, other sitters searched the cabinet and satisfied themselves there was no white cloth or other possible means of fraud there. These preliminaries completed, Mrs. Homer opened the cells with an extemporary prayer. Then the audience joined in the Lord's Prayer, after which, rather surprisingly, they sang that popular number, South of the Border, which it appears was the favourite tune of Mrs. Duncan's spirit guide, Albert. And now the medium herself appeared, clad all in black. She sat in the cabin, the curtains were drawn, the lights were dimmed, and the audience sat tense and hushed. How do you do? (gasps) It sounds like Albert. <sighs> it is too. Look. Good Lord. What's oh, that white stuff floating in the air? That's Albert's ectoplasm. Hello, Albert. I must say, it's nice to see so many familiar faces present. Well, now, I am here a lady who passed over with some trouble in the lower part of the body. Would somebody please call her up? Oh, thank go. Come on, don't be nervous. It's for the
1: gentleman or
0: Mr. Homer's right.
1: That'd be you, wouldn't it? Me? Yes. But, but I... I... Oh, I'm sure it must be for you. Go on, answer. Ask who she is.
0: Well, rather. all right, then. Uh, who are you? That's the voice. That's the gentleman, all right. Will you come out, please? Luke. Who are you? Uh, are you my aunt? Yes. Yeah. Well, I she didn't say. say much, did she? No, I'm There's a gentleman who passed with some trouble to his chest. It's for the same gentleman.
1: What? Me again? Yes. Ask him to come out. Will you come out, please? Oh, oh, him oh are you now. my uncle?
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh. Well, he's gone. Can't say your relative is a very talkative old boy but at least he had the decency to salute. Shh! And now I am here for the same gentleman, his sister. Sister? There must be some mistake. I've only one sister, and she's alive. You don't understand. This one was a premature child who died at birth. You're quite wrong. Uh, there were no premature children in our family. You can ask the question, if you like. What do you mean by that? Ask oh, your mother, I, I suppose. I shall well, will, too. I don't think we need bother with the rest of the towns. After this little brush concerning the sister Worth claimed he didn't have, Albert took no more interest in him and passed on to others. One of the materialized spirits had a long and amiable conversation with a man in the audience in which he, the spirit I mean, referred to someone as a shark and a twister. Then Albert retired and Peggy, the little Scottish girl, appeared. Peggy offered to sing. Dr. Fowler suggested Annie Laurie. Peggy said it was too high, so she sang Loch Lomond instead. Then she announced in broad scotch he, that she was Gondondoo and disappeared. There were a few other manifestations, a cat, a parrot, and a rabbit. And then the séance ended. Its effect had been not only to leave Fowler more sceptical than ever, but to turn Worth into a doubter as well. Up to now, I had a perfectly open mind about the whole business. I'm prepared to believe that still might be genuine spiritualism. But if there is, we didn't see it today. Oh, you agree with me that what you, we saw was a fake then? I'm convinced of it. For one thing i haven't a dead aunt for another i've no dead uncle who's ever in the navy and for another all that talk about a dead baby sister is utter tosh well you don't suppose albert got a bit mixed up and thought he was talking to me do you oh what makes you think that well after all we were in our wrong seats you know of course that's the whole explanation that means he must have known beforehand where you should have been sitting and that proves the whole thing's a fake Oh, well, it was an experience anyway. We might as well leave it at that. Uh, You can if you like, but I'm going to take it further. Why, what do you mean? People like that ought to be shown up. It's nothing but taking money under false pretenses. I'm going to report the whole thing to the police. You're letting yourself in for a lot of headaches, old boy. I don't care. I consider it's my duty. (laughs) the guy, as it were, to Detective Inspector Ford of Portsmouth City Police. And he was very definitely interested. Look, Inspector, don't take my word for it. Why don't you send a man along to see for himself? That's exactly what I intend to do, Mr. Worth. And I want you to take him as your guest. Me? Yes. In that way, he'll be much less likely to create suspicion than if he went along by himself as a stranger. Mm, I see your point. Then you'll do it. Well, I can't say it's a job I'll relish, but as I started all this, I suppose it's up to me to see it through. i Now, say nothing to anyone in the meantime, but come back here tomorrow and we'll have all the details worked out. Police plans were carefully laid. There was to be another seance on the following Wednesday, January the 19th. Worth booked two seats, and when he arrived, he was accompanied by War Reserve Constable Cross. Worth paid 25 shillings to Mrs. Homer, who, as before, ushered them upstairs to their seats. Both men knew exactly what they had to do. The a favour opportunity, Cross was to rush forward and try to grab the floating ectoplasm. At the same time, Worth was to flash on a powerful torch he carried, secreted. Then Cross was to blow his whistle. Inspector Ford and other police were to enter the premises and arrests were to be made. The seance began, as the other had, with the preliminaries of inspecting the cabinet, supervising Mrs. Duncan's dressing and the usual prayers. Then Mrs. Duncan entered the cabinet, the curtains were drawn, the lights were dimmed to a faint glimmer, and a moment later a wisp of white appeared. How do you do? Well, here we are again. Now, the first one I have with me tonight is a lady who passed away some years ago.
1: Can't you tell us more, Albert?
0: No, I'm afraid not. Will somebody please try to identify us? She's carrying a baby, I can tell you that much. Oh, that must be my mum. She died when I was a nipper. Oh, Roscoe, then well uh what'll i say, well, well, right. Right. Well, say who are you yes. is that you mother um who
1: are you is that you mother ah that's the boy. yes i'm your mother look i can see the baby oh i can oh, i can it's plain as everything oh, oh, oh.
0: not a very satisfactory beginning perhaps still the sounds went on Albert continued to act as go-between, and two more spirits appeared, talking in ghostly whispers and floating before the astonished audience in the form of ectobasm. Then, as a third wisp of white emerged from the cabinet, Worth felt a nudge, and he knew the time had come. Now, hey, hey, who is that here? <coughs> Got you. For heaven's sake, man, sign your torch. <laughs> In a medley of confusion of shouts and screams of scuttling figures in an ill-lit room the police trap was sprung we shall see in a minute what game it snared <laughs> with women screaming and a police whistle shrilling The Master Temple Psychic Centre had never known such a lively moment, even during the most dramatic sounds. Constable Cross found himself wrestling with a very substantial piece of ectoplasm which, in the light of Lieutenant Worth's torch, was revealed as Mrs. Duncan. As to what happened next, perhaps we'd better jump forward and let Worth describe it as he did later in court. When I flashed on the torch, I saw Mrs. Duncan trying to get rid of a piece (coughs) of white material which she was trying to throw onto the floor. What sort of material? Oh, it looked like flimsy cloth. I said uh, two or three yards of it. Uh, what happened then? Uh, as I went forward to assist Cross, uh, someone knocked down my torch, and I saw the cloth fall to the floor under the heat. Did your torch go out? Oh no, no. It focused away from the scene. As I brought it back, Cross was trying to grasp the cloth, and uh, someone pulled it into the audience. Uh, cross said, uh, "Did you get the cloth?" And I said, "No, it's gone." And Mrs. Duncan said, "Of course it's gone. It had to go somewhere." She didn't deny it was a cloth. Oh no. And, uh, what then? Uh, I saw Mrs. Duncan in her bare feet, trying to get her shoes on. And soon after that, she started screaming and yelling that she was ill and wanted a doctor, and then the police came. There was, of course, a great deal of protestation and many angry words. There was also a thorough but unsuccessful search for the missing piece of cloth, which I undoubtedly, found, would have become Exhibit A. Mrs. Duncan and the Homers were arrested and charged, and later a charge was also preferred against Mrs. Duncan's travelling companion, uh, Mrs. Francis Brown. The next step was that the Director of Public Prosecutions instructed Mr. John Maud K.C. and Mr. Henry Elam to draft an indictment of the four. This, it appears, was quite a problem. Of course, the usual thing would be the Vagrancy Act of 1824, Section 4. Any person pretending or professing to tell fortunes or using subtle craft, means or device, by palmistry or otherwise, to deceive or impose on any of His Majesty's subjects and so on and so on. Um, shall be deemed a rogue and a vagabond, liable as such to trial in a magistrate's court and on conviction to imprisonment with hard labor for a period not exceeding three months. Mm-hmm. Precisely, as mm-hmm. the case. I think this case is far too serious uh, to be dealt with summarily, don't you? Oh, I quite agree, of course. Of course, we could make it a straight charge of obtaining money by false pretenses. For ah, see difficulties there too, I'm afraid. We have to satisfy the jury that Worth parted with his money because of a specific pretense known by the accused to be false. But Mrs. Duncan was in a position to materialise spirits. Well, while the defence might simply retort not at all. The money was merely passed as the price of admission to a sales at which anything or nothing might happen. Quite. Right. No, we'll have to do something better than that, I think. Yeah, quite a problem, isn't <sighs> it? There is, of course, the Witchcraft Act. Witchcraft Act? You know, seventeen thirty five. Uh, more or less in the discard these days, of course. But here, yeah, hand me that book like a good fellow, will you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Sections three and four are the relevant ones, I think. Oh, are we now? Ah, yes, here we are. Any person who may pretend to exercise or use any kind of witchcraft, sorcery, enchantment, or conjuration shall be liable on conviction to a year's imprisonment. How's that? Hmm, it certainly seems to answer the purpose. But it's a little, well, unconventional in this day and age, isn't it? Or will people react? My dear fellow, we're not concerned with how people react. Our job is to see that an indictment's prepared which will offer the defense no possible loophole. And it's my belief this is the way we can do it best. So the Half-Forgotten Witchcraft Act was invoked, and seven separate charges were formulated against the four prisoners. Until this time, the case had excited little public interest. Now it soared into the headlines in the radio news sessions, to be avidly discussed every evening in millions of homes. The many spiritualists in England rallied solidly behind the defence. And on the morning of March the 23rd, there was a huge queue waiting for admission to the bomb-blitched Old Bailey. After pleas of not guilty had been entered for the defence, Mr. Maud opened for the crown. In the first two counts of this indictment, the Witchcraft Act has been used. But I want to make it abundantly clear at the outset that this prosecution is in no way connected with witchcraft. It is in no way aimed at the honest beliefs, whatever they may be, of any man or woman. What it is aimed at is something quite different. It is aimed at just ordinary, common fraud. Mr. Moore then told in detail the story of the two seances worth it attended and of the arrest of the prisoners. And he ended his address. And there, ladies and gentlemen, you have the full paraphernalia for fraud. The dark room, the little red lights, the two voices of Albert and Peggy. You have the traditional ghost appearing between the curtains. The constant prompting of the homers, the ectoplasm which felt like butter muslin, the prayers, the premature child, the aunt who was not dead. That is the picture of thought. One does not want to discourage seekers after truth. Our task is to turn a light on what happened in that little room in Portsmouth. Then Worth was, of course, the chief witness for the prosecution. He told his story straightforwardly and lucidly, and ended up well to the cross examination by Mr. Lowesby for the defense. Then followed a stream of witnesses Worth, Dr. Friend, Father, some people who had been present at the seances, Constable Cross, and finally Detective Inspector Ford. Then, in his opening address for the defense, Mr. Lowesby startled the court with an unusual offer. If it be true that Mrs. Duncan is a materialization medium, it means there is a spirit world near her at this moment. If she has got a guide, he will be with her now, probably trying to help her. If she be a person through whom spirit forms can, under certain circumstances, materialize, she might show them here. Members of the jury. I suggest that you ask, my lord, if you might be allowed to see, and possibly you might hear the voice of her guide for yourselves. And you would then be able to judge whether it was hers or a different voice. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, I propose a test seance, with doctors present and precautions taken to prevent fraud. Mr. offer was not permitted by the court, which seems a pity. He declined to call Mrs. Duncan as a witness on the ground that during the seances she'd been in a trance and knew nothing of what was going on So her part of the trial remained a particularly passive one. Indeed, of the four prisoners, only Ernest Homer went into the box. From him were elicited several interesting facts regarding the financial side of Mrs. Duncan's visit to Plymouth. So Mrs. Duncan received £104 for what amounted to six days' work. That's right. And when you paid her, what surplus was them? £30, 18 and 9. What happened to that? It was given to charities. Was any given to charities before the police raid on the 19th? No, sir. Hints that the prosecution might possess certain information about Mrs. Duncan Fast were implied in other questions asked of Homer. Did you know that in 1931, Mrs. Duncan was investigated by certain scientists? No, sir. Hadn't you heard that she'd been investigated by the National Laboratory of Psychical Research at any time? Oh, yes, I heard of that. And that she once uh, came away from the investigation without the hallmark of anything having happened? No, sir. On the whole, though, it must be admitted, Homer emerged with little discredit from the cross-examination. Certainly he revealed himself as an extremely credulous man, but after all, that was the charge against him. Following Homer, the defense called a huge list of witnesses, some who'd attended the seances at Portsmouth. Some who had peace experience of Mrs. Duncan as a medium, and some who testified to the genuineness of spiritualism in general terms. One at least had his evidence widely featured in the newspapers. This was Helen Swaffer, the well-known journalist. Swaffer proved as provocative in the witness box as he usually is in print. He told, for instance, of a test sales to which Mrs. Duncan had submitted in 1932. He took along four magicians, there two professionals and two doctors who were amateur magicians, Uh, Mrs. Duncan was tied by 40 yards of sash cord. She was handcuffed and her thumbs were tied tightly together with eight yards of thread. This was done by a professional magician. Even then, the phenomena persisted. What phenomena, Mr. Swapper? Uh, Spirit manifestations. And although it took eight minutes to tie her up, she was freed without assistance in three minutes. Even Houdini couldn't do that. Was Houdini one of the magicians you took with you? No, 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 sir. Who was uh, Mrs. Duncan's guide on that occasion? Uh, Albert, my lord, uh, the one who always acts for her. And, uh, these manifestations you speak of, um, uh, what did they comprise? Act the pleasure, my lord. Tell me, Mr. Swapper, you've been a dramatic critic, have you, too? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately for whom? <laughs> uh, unfortunately for the poor critic who has to sit it out, my lord. Would you know most of the actors in London? Some of them don't know me. It's been suggested that the phenomena exhibited by Mrs. Duncan could be simulated by a highly skilled actor. Is that your view? The wildest statements I made regarding psychic phenomena. I've heard, for instance, that it's ventriloquism. Now, when I've challenged a ventriloquist to throw his voice, he's failed to do it. Could the greatest actor you've ever known simulate the phenomena if he were laying himself out for fraud? An actor can impersonate a great deal at his job, but a medium cannot. I couldn't do it, and uh, I am a fairly good actor. <laughs> <laughs> In cross-examination, Swapper reveals some piquant facts about Mrs. Duncan's spirit guide, Albert, with whom he seemed to be on terms of some intimacy. What sort of a voice? would you say Albert Hall? Well, it thought it. When I first heard it, it was Cockney. I've heard it described as an Australian voice. Would you say it was Australian? There are all kinds of Australian voices. There's uh, Melba's, for instance. Let's leave Melba out of it. Which do you think it was most like? Oxford, Australian, Canadian, or Cockney? I don't remember. It was in 1932. Later in cross-examination, Swaffer disclosed the interesting fact that he too had a spirit guide, an Egyptian named Darak Ahmed. Also he asked, and was refused, permission to try to swallow a length of butter muslin to show that the regurgitation theory was all nonsense. After this lively interlude, the stream of witnesses continued, and the case had been going on for six days before the last them stepped down. Once again, the defense offered to submit Mrs. Duncan to a test test. The judge asked the jury if they desired it. They said they did not. Then came the final addresses, the summing up, the jury's retirement. they have been asked to give a verdict on the first count only. In 24 minutes, they'd return to court. Their verdict? We find all four guilty as charged. So ends The Secrets of Scotland Yard, starring Clive Brooks as the narrator.